you all would stand with me in honor of reading God's word. Our passage from this morning is going to come from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You guys can have a seat. Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, as we hear it read aloud, and as we I seek to preach it faithfully, pray that your spirit would speak through me, that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to what your word has to say, um, that your spirit would apply it rightly uh, and specifically to each one of us. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, we're at a significant point in the book of Romans. We said... Uh, how many ever months ago when we started Romans, we said that the book is about how the gospel must shape our church's beliefs and behaviors. And the first 11 chapters, for the most part, laid a foundation of gospel truths or things that we ought to believe. So there were some applications in there. And now the text shifts and it's going to start drilling down into some gospel behaviors out of those gospel beliefs that would wildly reshape our church and our community for the better if we were to follow them. But as I prepared for this message and as I prepared for what the text has to say, I realized that there is one major obstacle to this. One big thing that allures us away from what this passage will begin to call us towards, that will undermine the commands of these gospel behaviors that Paul's about to give us. It is, I suppose, what you could call a false religion, a false religion that you, in fact, have been partaking in, did you know? Did you realize that you have been partaking in a false religion? You're thinking you're doing something right, but in fact, you've been erecting an altar and worshiping at it. 
while thinking you're worshiping something else. You know what that is? It's what I'm going to call today the cult of self. See, the cult of self says things like this. The cult of self says that no one is going to love and care about you as much as you do. The cult of self says no one can can love and care for you as well as you can love and care for yourself. The cult of self says, it goes on to say, there's no one, in fact, that deserves your love more than you deserve your love, right? The cult of self tells you things like this. It says, if you don't make yourself number one, then you'll never be able to really love other people as well as you could. And so you need to make yourself number one. You need to take care of yourself first, you know, as, as if we're in an airplane and you've got to put your mask on first before you can put someone else's mask on, right? You don't take care of yourself first. If you're not number one, then you just won't be empowered to love and care for others. That's how you become empowered to love and care for others. So really, what the cult of self is saying, the lie it gives you is worshiping at this altar, altar of yourself, that, that's going to help you to help other people. It's going to help you to serve the world. You see, the cult of self has become so ubiquitous that I'd guess you don't even realize that it's going on. It's found in billion-dollar industries of self-help, self-improvement, and self-care. Not that everything in those categories is wrong that you're going to interact with. That's not what I'm saying, though I'd guess that a lot of it is actually quite contrary to the gospel. But that the very essence of what it teaches is a different gospel altogether. It's a different good news. It's a lesser good news. It feeds you what seems good to keep you from the good news. Keeps you looking at yourself rather than looking at Jesus. That's what it does. And so we overlook Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2 that says that in the last days, the last days will be perilous. Why? Because men will be lovers of themselves. That's the reason Paul gives. We overlook that because I'm supposed to take care of myself, right? It makes, good, it makes what is actually bad news sound like good news. And so this morning we come to Romans 12, 1 through 8, right? And it's going to introduce to us a better way. Paul, in the next few chapters, is going to introduce to us a better way of living based on the gospel I was going to call this sermon your best life now, but apparently that's trademarked, so I went with something else. Actually, I haven't even decided what it's going to be called yet, but Paul calls us to replace, guys, the cult of self and to worship at a different altar and serve a different end. In verses 1 and 2 in this passage, he's going to call us to replace the cult of self with sacrifice to God. And in verses 3 through 8, he's going to call us to replace the cult of self with service to Christ's body. And this sounds 
paradoxical. It sounds uh, opposite, right? It's counterintuitive, if you will, to the way that we think. But what Paul's going to say is actually laying down the cult of self and taking these things up instead is not only better in bringing glory to God and benefiting the church, it's actually better for you as well. And so Romans 12, 1 through 2, it, it serves really as an introductory statement for the next few chapters of the letter. And the idea of replacing the cult of self with sacrifice to God is really an overarching idea for everything else in regards to our conduct with others. And that's where it starts. You cannot act in a gospel way towards other people if you are not first replacing the cult of self with sacrifice to God. It starts there. It starts with our relationship to God. In other words, we, we can't act rightly towards one another until we are surrendered and given over to Christ and his authority. The result of this is that as Christians, we don't sacrifice others at the altar of me, but rather, we sacrifice me at the altar of God. That's worship. And how does Paul describe this sacrifice? How does he describe this worship? Well, he describes it a few different ways. First, he says that the sacrifice is living, right? It's a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's not merely a willingness to lay down your life in death for God, but to lay down your life in life to God. And it's not merely some sort of spiritual thing, though it is that. It's also quite physical, right? He says, lay down your bodies, present your bodies, your life, what you do. And so the second thing that the sacrifice is, is it's, the sacrifice gives everything. It's living and the sacrifice gives everything. Sacrifices cannot withhold any part of their life from God, right? None. That's the nature of being a sacrifice. It takes everything. Our response to what God has done for us is not, okay, God, I guess, I guess I'll permit you to come and make a request if you'd like, and then I'll consider your offer, God. And, and if it suits me, if it makes sense to me, then I guess I'll do what you ask. No, that's not how a sacrifice works. Our response is, here is all of me, Jesus. Whatever you request, my answer is already yes before you ask the question. That's what it means to live the Christian life. Sacrifices, by the nature of what they are, are kind of all in, right? It's not like, uh, I guess today I'll be a sacrifice, tomorrow, I don't know. Third, the sacrifice is pleasing to God. It's holy and acceptable, right? Verse 2 says that what we are trying to do is what is good and acceptable 
and perfect, acceptable there. The word is pleasing, pleasing according to God, not according to someone else. It's not what's good to me. It's not what's good to someone else. It's not what's good to the world or acceptable to the world or, or, or perfect to the world. It's what is good, right, and pleasing to God. That's the driving force of our lives, that we could enjoy God's mercies and simply ask the question in every decision, what would be pleasing to God? Like I, I, can't, I can't understate this, guys. Church, I cannot understate this. Every single decision you make, all of them, Underneath of that, whether it's expressly asked or whether it's just, uh, it kind of happens intuitively or unconsciously, under every single one, the question, the base question is this, is this pleasing to God? Would this please God? Fourth, there's a lot of points in this sermon, I'm sorry. There's just a lot going on here. It really should have been two sermons. I told Amanda, I said, is this another point? And I said, but that's a sub-point. So I don't have 17 points in this sermon. Fourthly, the sacrifice is true worship. Right? And depending on what version you're reading, you might, it might say spiritual worship or reasonable worship or true worship. The Greek word, word behind this is logikos, and it's only used in the New Testament in one other place. So it's not very commonly used, and Paul kind of pulls it out here, but in uh, Greek and Roman Jewish thought of the day, it was very common. They argued at that time that the, one of the reasons that, uh, one of the uh, things God and humans have in common is this logos, this, this ability to reason. So rather than worship being this mere following of superstitious habits that was common in Greek pagan religions, our hearts and our minds ought to be engaged along with our bodies in our acts of worship. So we're talking about worship that's not just physical. It is physical, but it's not just physical. Uh, It is also a worship that engages our mind and heart. That we do, but we do because our heart and our, and our mind are engaged in. We know what we're doing and growing in our desire to do this. And all of this is contrasted, I believe, with what, what Paul wrote all the way back in chapter 1. Can you believe that? Chapter 1, verses 23, 22 through 25 say this. Uh, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their flesh to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, right? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so you see the connection here. Rather than offering their bodies to God as a living sacrifice, because they didn't acknowledge God, they exchanged God for a lie. They gave their bodies over to things that were dishonoring, that God didn't approve of, that are not good, are not pleasing, and not perfect. The engagement of mind, body, and heart, right, are all there in chapter 1, but for illegitimate worship, 
And what Paul is saying is, in view of God's mercies, we can truly worship. The question that comes next is, how can we know what we ought to do? And I want to share a little illustration. Hopefully this helps. Sometimes I ask my kids to do something, and they ask me why. Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? Hey, can you grab that for me? Why? I'm not looking for a question back. I'm looking for you to do the thing I asked you to do, right? Just do it. In reality, in those situations, they just need to obey. And usually this question of why is motivated by getting out of obedience, right? I'm looking for a reason to get out of doing this thing that you asked me to do. But in that moment, they need to just obey. The why in that moment is that I'm their father who loves and cares for them and asks them to do that. And so they ought to trust me in that moment and do it not based on their understanding of the situation or the task, but based on their understanding of me. However, hoping I'd get an amen from Josie on that, but I didn't. However, however, when they are able to understand why I would want them to do that, there is a, a good side to this, right? Because there is a side of why that is motivated by a desire to get into obedience rather than get out of obedience. If they understand why in order to get into obedience, then they're not only able to obey or not, they're not only, yeah, they not only obey in uh, the situations where there is explicit command from me, but in other different situations and tasks, they're able to begin to discern what I would want them to do there. They begin to think as their dad thinks, and that can only be a good thing, right? Because the way that they view life, the way that they view the world, the way that they view the situation, the way that they view what is good and what is right and what is pleasing is being conformed to the way that I view it, right? And so, also it is with us, with our Heavenly Father, that sometimes He asks you to do something and we say, why? And He's saying, no, 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 wrong answer, wrong question. The right question is, who am I? You understand who God is, and you do it anyways. But it's also a kind of why that seeks to get into obedience to God. And when you begin to understand why God is the way he is, when you begin to understand why he wants you to do the things you do, then you begin to be able to discern what he wants you to do in situations where you were not able to discern it before. Paul calls that earlier, he called that living by the Spirit rather than the law. Verse 2 tells us how to bring about this transformation. And really, what it says is there's two models for living. There's two models for living that Paul presents. There's the world's model and there's God's model, right? The world's model comes from a mindset that is ignoring the existence of God. It's exchanging the truth for a lie, remember? Romans 1. 
by God's common grace, the world may touch on things that are true and right things to God, but it will be fundamentally flawed always because it fundamentally rejects a knowledge, an acknowledgement of, not just a knowledge of God, but an acknowledgement of God. But God's model is based on his word. And so while human sin touches those who are seeking to follow God's model, and so we won't always do it perfectly, right? We'll, we'll be flawed in some ways. And yet it's a firm foundation so long as we recognize God and keep going back to his word. So Paul tells us, don't conform to the world. Don't conform to the world's model of living. There are those who say, hey, these things in the world, they're really not that bad. I mean, if it's this common in the world, can it really be that bad? My answer is yes. Yes, it can. Absolutely. The, the world wants to ask why to get out of obedience. Why do we, why, do you really have to do that? We're so crafty, friends, at making excuses for ourselves here, right? We're so crafty at excusing our behavior and saying, oh, it's not really, like, it's not really that bad. Like, this probably isn't, you know, you know. and everyone else, I, even, I, I know a Christian who does this. Who thinks this? Who believes this? What's God's word say? I'll tell you. If someone says, well, certainly the Bible doesn't mean that, that, that idea is kind of antiquated. Like, like, I'm just telling you, if anyone says that phrase, don't listen to them. Just period. Turn the channel. Turn the channel. On the other hand, we can be transformed into God's model for life. The tense of the verb transform, it implies a continuing effort. This is a process that continually engages both our effort and the Holy Spirit's power as our whole person is transformed. And it happens as our minds are renewed, right? Minds here, it's not just like intellectual capacity, but it's, it's our moral thinking and willing. Knowing more can be helpful. Knowing more about God's word can be helpful. Knowing more about who God is can be helpful. And yet we know that there are a lot of people with enormous intellectual capacity, even a lot of knowledge about the Bible and about theology, who absolutely get it wrong. I think it's what Proverbs calls wisdom. What Ecclesiastes calls wisdom, right? It's an acknowledgement first of who God is as the fundamental truth before you know anything else. So we find that there are people who have very little intellectual capacity, just to be honest, and yet are being transformed in fierce ways and people who have a lot of intellectual capacity who are not. I think about it like this. Uh, I remember when we bought, my family bought our first computer years ago. My dad got the computer. You know, I didn't even know what this thing did. In fact, it didn't really do much, actually. It, it was pretty, um, it was pretty pointless that we spent that much money on it in, re in retrospect. 
But I remember it was, it was a little too slow for him. And so we went down to Best Buy. You remember when we used to, you used to go down to Best Buy? Anyone that's under like 25 doesn't remember those times. I went down to Best Buy because that's where you went. And my dad bought an eight megabyte memory chip, right? Which was like, whoa. It's like, they don't even make memory chips that are in megabytes anymore. But it was like, it was like this big. It was like the size of my phone. Eight megabytes. And think about how much more computing power is in my iPhone right now than that computer we had. It's not even, there's more computing power in your iPhone than the computer that's put a man on the moon. Did you know that? But as much more computing power is here as was there, if there is a virus on this phone, it doesn't matter, does it? It don't work right. Let me tell you about the virus. Paul tells us in Romans 1.28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That's the virus. It's the virus. Refuse to acknowledge God. Doesn't matter how much you know intellectually. Your system for moral thinking and willing is broken. So as we acknowledge God, his truth, his authority, his goodness, we're able by testing to discern, right? That is that we don't merely know what God says in his word, but we trust it enough to put it into practice. We see, yes, God is good, and we obey the command, not because the command makes sense to us in the moment necessarily, but because we trust the one who has given it to us. And as we trust him, we're able to discern what God's will is, that which pleases him, and it has a transforming impact on our life. Spiritual maturity isn't merely knowing a lot about the Bible. There's lots of people that know a lot about the Bible. It's by faith discerning God's will and living it out. How can we know, friends, when we are worshiping at the cult of self? Because it's, it's tricky, isn't it? It's deceptive. I mean, Satan hasn't hung around so long because he's not really good at lying to us. All right? He's, he's pretty crafty. It's funny. God has a plan for this. He calls it community. He calls it the church. He calls it other believers. You start rubbing up against other people, and those areas of selfishness and pride begin to come to the surface really fast. And in an, an odd paradox, our sacrifice to God is actually often pictured in Scripture as service to one another. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul declares, I serve you for Christ's sake. So Paul commands us to replace the cult of self with service to Christ's body. And he tells us that that service starts first by thinking humbly. Negatively, he says, we must not think of ourselves too highly. We must think of ourselves in sober judgment. What what does he mean, sober judgment? You know uh, that friend that goes and sees a new movie and then texts you right after the movie and tells you about how awesome the movie is and how it's the best movie ever and how, you know, it's like, oh, this movie is so great, you gotta go see it. And so you're like, man, this is like the best movie ever. I better go see it. And so you go and you buy your ticket and you go to the movie and you're like, yeah, it was good, I guess. 
And then you talk to them, and you're like, I thought this was the best movie ever. And they're like, well, okay, I was really excited after the movie, and maybe I exaggerated a little bit. You end up disappointed, more disappointed. You, you probably would have been cool with the movie if they hadn't got your expectations so high. And so that's what we do, right, with ourselves. We, we get all jazzed up about ourselves, and in reality, we're not really thinking soberly, and someone else is like, nah, you're all right. I mean, if you, if you, were, if you didn't think of yourself so highly, I'd probably let, be less disappointed, you know? What's the measuring stick? What's the measuring stick we're supposed to use, right? What does it say there? It says, uh, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What does that mean? I think some people take uh, that, uh, the measure of faith uh, to mean amount, amount of faith, as in think of yourself according to the amount of faith that you happen to have. But in the context of this passage, that actually doesn't really make sense. Paul's talking about conducting ourselves in view of God's mercies, right? In view of everything that he's written from chapter 1 to chapter 11, and frankly, he's talked about uh, the fact that we really don't deserve much on our own because we're quite sinful. And so I think it's better to take this, uh, this idea of measure as a standard. What's the standard? Rather than saying, I have this much faith, how much do you have? Paul is telling us here that our faith is a gift of God. that none of us deserved it, and yet God gave it. And it's only by God's mercy that you even have faith in the first place. And so consider yourself according to that standard. That ought to always leave us thinking humbly about ourselves. And so right thinking, humble thinking, leads to serving faithfully just as a body has uh, as one and yet it has different parts and each part has a particular function or a particular role. So too, the church is one in Christ and yet we're all members one of another, right? So each of us depend on one another in some sense and that's kind of scary, right? Because it's, man, I don't know if you're going to function the way you ought to. And yet, we need all of the parts for proper functioning as a body. And Paul, he throws out some different examples of, of gifts here. And we can't get into this super in-depth. But a couple of things I want to point out to you is this. First off, he shows that there is a diversity of gifts within the body. Gifts that differ according to the grace given, it says. Not in a quantitative sense as if, you know, hey, you get some more grace and you get some less grace. But in a qualitative sense in, in that Jesus graces different people with different gifts. Ephesians 4 talks about that. That Jesus decides the gifts that, you, that we get. Or that we don't get. And there's a diversity. And we ought to utilize them diligently and faithfully, right, in proportion to faith and in serving and in teaching and in generosity. And that the purpose of these gifts is for the glory of God and for the good of his church. But the cult of self, it wants, it wants to warp this service and turn it into something it's not supposed to be. He wants to take the idea of a diversity of gifts and warp it into a competition of who has the better gift. 
The consequence is if we think we have better gifts, then we begin to think of ourselves too highly, right? And if we think that we have worse gifts, we begin to think of ourselves too lowly. Rather than resting in the truth that all the parts of the body are the same in terms of salvation, but they're not the same in in terms of gifting. And that's actually a good thing for all of us. Christ, the head of the body, he gets to decide. And so when we trust that this is good and better for all of us, we can be satisfied with the gifts and the roles that God has given us. We can use them faithfully and diligently, and we can be faithful and obedient to God in those things. Rather than trying to be something that we just frankly aren't. The cult of self wants to take this idea of faithful service and warp it into being about how you feel rather than being about how you're faithful. So the consequence is if we don't feel like we're in our sweet spot serving in some way, even if God's commanded us to to do that thing, then we won't serve because aren't I supposed to feel a certain way when I do this? Now, it's great, listen, it's great when you feel like you're locked in, you know, and you're like, yeah, this is how God's, this is how God's wired me, and I see that I'm making an impact, and, I'm, and I have a certain confidence in Christ to do this thing, and man, that's awesome when that happens, it's great, but sometimes, sometimes there's just things that need to be done, right? It's like when you got, like, your kid's shoes are laying down on the ground in the living room, and they keep walking through the living room and stepping over them over and over again. And you're like, well, you've spent more energy stepping over your shoes than if you would have just picked them up. Right. And so often as Christians, we spend more energy trying to figure out what we're supposed to do for Jesus and how he's wired us than just meeting the darn need that's right in front of us. And maybe, just maybe, in meeting that need, God will actually reveal to you the way that he's gifted you. Maybe he's put that need in front of you to actually show you that thing. Maybe he's sovereign over everything. Oh my goodness, it could be God's providence. I'm getting a little sarcastic today. And we get so wrapped up in trying to figure ourselves out and looking at our own belly buttons that we don't see the needs of other people right in front of us. The cult of self wants to take this purpose of glorifying God and benefiting the church with with the gifts he's given us. And he wants to warp it into this idea of like, I need to change the world. I'm going to change the world. Newsflash, no, you're not. Jesus changes the world. He did and is changing the world. You don't. He may use you in some way in that, but that's not your job description. Our service to others ceases in that, at that point to be about others. It actually becomes about ourselves. I need to change the world for me, to feel good about me. So I can know that I did this great thing. If we aren't making a big impact as we see it, then we must be missing something rather than just trusting God and being obedient with the thing in front of us and trusting that in the grand scheme of all that he is doing in his sovereign 
nature that we are doing exactly what he is wanting us to do. When we serve other believers for Christ's sake, the entire body benefits as God distributes his limitless gifts. See, we think it's a zero-sum game, right? Well, if I do this here, then I can't have that there. But God's like, no, I've got limitless gifts that you don't even understand. There is no zero-sum game with Jesus. And so all of this, though, all of this uh, sacrifice to God and all of this service to others, it kind of makes us nervous. Because what about my happiness? What about me? If I sacrifice, if I serve, then how will I get mine, right? Hmm. I kind of skipped over the most important phrase, I think, in the entire passage. What makes all of this go? What makes it work? What does it say? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. There may not be any more important phrase in the rest of Romans than that phrase right there. By the mercies of God. The only solution to the obstacle and the allure of the cult of self is to see and understand and to believe and to experience God's mercies in the gospel. So the cult of self says, no one can love and care about you as well as you can love and care about you. But John 15, 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, but that one lay down his life for his friends. So it, it turns out you can't love yourself as well as someone else can, according to Jesus. Because you're you. You're incapable of doing it. The cult of self says that no one will love and care about you as much as you do. But Romans 5 says God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God has, Jesus has loved you more than you can ever love yourself. He does love you more than you can ever love yourself. This cult of self says that there's no one that deserves your love more than you deserve your love. But 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him, who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus deserves your love more than you deserve your love. Period. Cult of self, it tells you that you, that if you aren't the highest priority, then you won't be empowered to love and care for others. But Philippians 3, 7, and 8 says this, but whatever, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's writing this from prison, right? In 2 Corinthians 4, 5, I said it earlier, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' 
sake. You see, the good news is not that we get our best life now, but that because Christ already gave you his life, then you can give your best life now. When we grasp at life for ourselves, we end up sacrificing each other and inevitably spoiling our own lives and the beauty of the gospel. But when, when we can sacrifice our lives for God, because he's already sacrificed his for us, we know that he will give us what he's promised we need. We think about this. Abraham preparing to sacrifice his son Isaac says that he believed God promised it then certainly it's not outside God's ability to bring Isaac back from the dead and so he brought his son and laid him on the altar took up the knife and Hebrews tells us that it was as if God brought him back from the dead. So do you not believe that if you laid your life down for Christ, that he could not raise it up? Trust him enough to put your life on the altar. You trust him enough that if your life seems dead, he can bring it to life. Listen, some of you guys come in this morning and you feel spiritually dry. You are not enjoying God. The struggle to please him. Enjoying God, it, it starts with knowing who he is. It starts with having a view of him. It starts with putting in our view. I love, I memorized this passage in the NIV first. It says, in view of God's mercies is how the NIV translates it. If you do not have in your view God's mercies, this is going to be incredibly difficult to do. And so what I would tell you to do is go back and read Romans 1 through 11 again. And if it's not in view yet, read it again and read it again and get on your knees and pray to God that through the Holy Spirit, he would reveal his mercies to you and read it again. Don't stop. If you're in a desert, you can stand there baking and complaining about the sand in your pants, or you can start walking until you find an oasis. Listen, as we prepare for communion, I want you to think about a few things. Consider these words from Colossians 3. It says, If then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, in view of God's mercy, right? Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also, then you also will appear with him in glory. Think about every time scripture where God has significantly revealed himself to someone 
Abraham believed, and then he followed that up with the action of putting his son on the altar, and God showed up. Noah believed, and then he followed that up with building an ark, even though it hadn't rained, and the rains showed up. David believed, and he followed that up by picking up a slingshot and standing in front of a giant, and God knocked him down. The disciples believed, and when Jesus said, hey, come follow me instead, they dropped their nets, and they followed him. Are you willing to look at who God is, lay whatever down at the altar, and see what God does? Are you willing to do that this morning? Romans tells us that we've died with Christ. Friends, what things of this world are you seeking that if you knew you would die today, they would not matter? What things of this earth have you set your mind on that if you knew you would die today, you wouldn't even think about them again this morning? What petty, selfish issues with some other person have you been holding on to that if you were going to die today, that thing would not matter anymore? You have died with Christ as a living sacrifice. And you've been raised to live a different life than the pattern of this world. Friends, if there's something that you're holding on to this morning, unwilling to lay down, you've been unwilling to sacrifice it at the foot of the cross, before you take communion, this is what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to lay it down. Now, you can do this in prayer where you are. I get that. You absolutely can. But I find that oftentimes that when we tie physical action with spiritual realities, that, that, that God seeks to, uh, he, he makes those things significant in our lives. So this is what I'd encourage you to do, that before you take communion, if there is something that God has put on your, you, on, in your mind, on your heart, that you know, man, I need I need to put that at the altar. I don't know what God's going to do with it. Maybe he'll raise it up. Maybe he won't. Maybe I, it needs to be dead. But I need to trust Jesus with that. There's something that falls into that category for you. And before you take communion, this is what I ask you to do. I'd ask you to pray to, to Jesus and lay it down. And if it would be significant for you, you feel like, no, God wants me to, to tie this with a physical action that would, that would embed it in my memory, then I would ask that you'd come forward here at this altar. We've never had an altar like this before. That you get on your knees, physically get on your knees and pray first. Then take communion. And then celebrate the reality that when you lay something down, when something dies to Jesus, that he raises up what he wants to raise up. If you're not a believer yet, communion is, is something that's just for those who are in your church. So if you're not a believer, I want you to know that this is the offer that stands. That if you come 
to Christ and you lay down all of you. Stop trusting in yourself and you trust in him instead. He promises to raise you up. He will not cast you out. So I'd ask if you are not a believer that you would consider that reality. That you would pray that you too would lay down your life, all of you, to him. 